Hey there, history fans. Melissa here. I just want to let you know that the episode you're about to listen to is one of our older episodes. So the way that we sound here is a bit different from what we sound like today. Over time, we've been able to change our format a bit. We've acquired new editing software as well as new mics. So if the sound quality here isn't to your liking, please feel free to check out any of our newer episodes from Elmer McCurdy or anything from about March 18th up to today. I promise they sound a lot better. Otherwise, please enjoy the episode. We hope you learned something new and we hope to have you back for more episodes as we continue to trek through history to explain it all. Hey there, history history fans, and welcome to another episode of the History Explains It All podcast with your host, Lauren and Melissa. And on today's episode, we are covering the Voynich Manuscript. Ah, Another one. All right. Hey, you guys voted for it. You guys (laughs) voted for it. By the way, we will be putting up another poll on Instagram And just so you know, we do keep it open for a week, and I know that the Instagram polls are only open for like 24 to 48 hours or something. That's as far as I know. If I can change that and you guys know how, let me know, please. But if it only stays up for so long, what I do is also put up a post saying that we put up the poll on the Instagram page as well, because we do keep it open. Go ahead and vote on the the Instagram page versus the My Story page. If the poll is gone. So you can you can vote there too. Just wanted to let you know that too. As I, next week we're putting up another poll. And if you enjoyed today's episode. Feel free to leave us a review. I know you can do that on uh, Apple. On iTunes. You're also welcome to do that. We can do that on the Instagram. On Facebook. Uh, we do have the email. Which is historyexplainsall at gmail.com. You can contact us through there. Any questions. Any episode ideas you want to forward on to us. Feel free. Yeah, the Facebook page and Instagram page or History Explains It All underscore podcast. And like I said, polls. We're starting polls. Go talk to us. <laughs> Give us information. We want to hear what you think about things and ideas or anything. Like if we miss something, let us know. We want to <laughs> learn with you. <laughs> <laughs> Just a heads up, there will not be a weird history today. No, uh, no. <laughs> Today's topic is got it has a lot of information, and I just wanted to jump right ahead. Uh-huh. Kitty. Yeah. Okay. Always, it, it's always the cat. <laughs> Why is this always a thing with you? <laughs> we got a big topic today. I wanted to get right into it, so we don't have a weird history this week, just because the episode is going to take about a whole hour. So I wanted to give it as much time as we are able to give it. All right, so maybe we should just, you know, jump into it. Splash. Splishy splash. Alrighty. You want to start or I, I could start? Either one of us could technically start. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're talking about a manuscript here. 
so it's a 15th century manuscript, just so you know. We know that it's been dated via radiocarbon dating. We'll get more into that later. Oh, yeah. So this manuscript is unusual as well as rare. What an understatement. (laughs) Unusual. I I will say on on the front, if you listen to our, our Codex Gigas or the Devil's Bible episode, you'll probably like this one too, because this is absolutely fascinating. But I also really like cryptography, so that's extra fascinating just to me, probably. Nerd. But it, I'm such a nerd. Oh, don't even get me started on cryptography, but this whole episode's on it. So, yes, I'm going to nerd out. <laughs> that's me on Egyptology. Keep going. So, it's an, actually, we don't know, we know much, of, we know a lot about what. The book is on a physical description, mm-hmm. but we can't tell anything about what it actually is. There's a lot of theories on what may be inside in terms of what the text reads, but we don't have any specific ideas. Basically, and we'll get to that in the- Basically, it's not deciphered. We don't know what the words mean no. because it's in an unknown right. language. Right, right. Or at least it's in code. So it's written... And a a text that has never been deciphered and has no known author. We don't know who it is. Even like with the Devil's Bible, we don't know who the actual author is. But we there was the theories that it was that monk who sold his soul to the devil to write this one book in one night. But at least there's a name to that person. This this author has absolutely no name to it. But or what's really fascinating. Or possibly authors, too. But what's really fascinating about this book, aside from it seems to be indecipherable, is the the illustrations in it are also no somewhat indecipherable. They make no sense. There's a lot of plants and women, naked women usually, uh, but it's very medieval-esque naked women, so it, it's not anything graphic it's just people with no clothes is all it is and there's a lot of like zodiac symbols and suns and moons and we'll get into that but it's what's absolutely fascinating and a, and a key thing to this book is no one has ever found and we've had scientific studies on this book that there's not a single mistake in this book at all no drawing mistake no text mistake no it's, it's on vellum and sometimes on vellum, especially on old vellum because he's probably a little thicker but on vellum, you can take a blade and sort of scratch off some of the, the ink once it's dried and kind of restart from there. There isn't anything like that whatsoever in this book. It's as if the person writing it was as meticulous and perfectionistic as possible and creating these possibly up to 240 to 270 pages. That's a lot of dedication to a book. And we'll get into later on in our theories section and possible author section on some of that. But just wanted to let you know, it's a very unusual book. If just for the fact that there seems to be no mistakes made whatsoever in the writing or the drawings. So we know it's called Voynich Manuscript, which is named by uh, Wilfred Voynich, and I'll get into his history and background in just a bit. But he found, he was a a antiques and rare books dealer, and he actually found it in 1912. So I don't know that it necessarily had a name prior to that. It's not known to have had any other names other than Voynich Manuscript, which was named after Voynich himself. Basically, 
there's no written record that we could find that says this book had a title before Voynich found it and and mm-hmm. brought it brought it to light. It existed what before we his finding, but not with a name. Right. What we do know uh, is various owners of the book at the least Ooh. some of it is possible possible hearsay because there's no known information there's no inventory lists or letters for some of the people that have thought to have owned it but then uh, once we get past a certain point we know who owned it up to the time that voynich owned it and then how it even got to the benicky library which is at yale and we'll get into that so starting from the beginning as far as we know <laughs> As far as we know, it was, well, I'll, I'll just start at the possible John D. How it, I'll, just, I'll just start with the John D and work my way down because it makes it easier to work from John D. So, wait, wait, by the way, if you don't know who John D is, we did a whole episode on him. Go take a listen. But <laughs> yeah, John, John D, the, the mystic in Elizabeth I's court is who who we're discussing here sorry very fascinating person (laughs) no no you're fine so it john d was possibly the first person who posited that this book was written by none other than the franciscan friar roger bacon which i'll get to in a later section but john d at one point along with his essentially scribe uh, edward kelly who helped him write the enochian or angelic language were part of the court for the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who lived between 1576 to 1612. Or, I'm sorry, reigned from 1576 to 1612. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not a lot of years to be emperor, but okay. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> but we don't necessarily know if Rudolf actually owned the book. What we do know, but it is believed that he owned the book due to a letter that comes up later. So after Rudolph II owned it, when he was actually sort of deposed by his brother, Matthias, uh, later on, uh, the estate actually owned money to various people because Rudolph was kind of known not to have paid people because he was spending more money on all the occult stuff he was buying, which if you listen to our John D. episode, you'll hear some of that because it's quite fascinating. Rudolph was we not known. an episode. Yeah. Rudolph was we not an episode known on it, yeah. for thinking about his monetary situation. So <laughs> he was actually not that well known as a great emperor, anyway, as far as I know. Yeah, that's so, no. Uh, so yeah, there. Uh, upon his, his, I guess, death or deposition, the book was given as a form of payment to the person who was actually his personal physician, or I believe the court. High court pharmacist. distiller, I think. No, he's pharmacist. He was the imperial he's, pharmacist. He's, yeah, well, it distiller is pharmacist. Yeah, he was his personal doctor, oh, and his name else. was Jacobus <laughs> Barczyski uh, de Tepanec, who was, I believe, Polish, and he lived from 1575 to 1622. And we know that he had owned the book at one point because. Using ultraviolet light, it was found that on folio 1R, and we'll get when we get the description sections, I'll get into what the folio actually is. But it does read Jacobi the Tepanich uh, in a certain portion on the front inner cover of the book, 
which at one point was thought that he had actually written the book because his name was in it. But turns out going through various books that he either purchased or actually written himself, his name was in all the books. So it was just him as pointing out, I, this is my book. It's in part of my collection. This is, I, I own this. It's not really so much that he actually wrote it. And after he passed away, he, the book then passed into the hands of Georg Beresh, who was a Czech antiques collector and alchemist from 1585 to 1662. And he was also really into trying to decipher this book, and he couldn't kind of get anywhere. So there was this man named um, Athanasius Kircher, who was a German... He was essentially the Da Vinci of the 1500s, <laughs> the 1600s. I mean, this man was a massive poly. He's, he's compared to Da Vinci. He's, he's a massive polymath. But he, it, I mean, Brush essentially said, if anyone can decipher this book, it's Kircher. And Kircher couldn't do it. But Kircher wanted to actually take a look at the actual book. But Barash said, I, you know, I'm, I'm too far away. I don't kind of want to mail this to you. I don't want anything happening to it. It's such a rare copy. Uh, but I'll send you some copies of the pages, which he did send to Kircher in 1639 in order to help him, in order to see if he could help decipher it. And 1639 is the first known written recording of this book. Again, we the, the book is carbon dated to have been between 1408 and I think 1430. And the first known written recording of this book was in 1639. But Kircher eventually would get his hands on the book. When Baresh died, he actually willed it to a colleague of his at university, uh, Johannes Marcus Marcy. And mm -hmm. he was also really into deciphering the book as well. And turns out Kircher was actually Marcy's teacher at one point. So eventually Marcy actually gave the book to Athanasius Kircher. And Kircher had the book for quite some time. Side note, Johannes Marcus Marcy was also, these guys were all really into optics and science and scientific method and the enlightenment and technology and science and medicine. I mean, just anything you kind of get your hands on. Marcy apparently has a crater. There's a crater named after him on the far side of the moon. Just found that out. And I thought it was really interesting. Random and side so, note. <laughs> just side note. So Kircher held on to the book for a while, and I believe he spent possibly, I think, around 20 years trying to decipher it and never really could. But it ended up in his collection of books, which part of the Jesuits for a while, for a long while, because Kircher died in 1680. And in fact, when Voynich found the book in 1912, so he's there was a letter actually dated to uh, 1666 that actually Marcy had written to Kircher, hmm. which is available to view. It's in Latin, but it's available to view uh, on the Yale University's website, on the Benicke Library's uh, website on the PDF files, which we'll have a link to. My Latin is not good enough to have read the whole thing, but it's really nifty to look at. <laughs> <laughs> my ancient Greek is so much better than my Latin. <laughs> <laughs> but the letter itself is how we are believed that Rudolph II actually owned the book because the letter actually states that the book once belonged to Rudolph II and was actually bought by him for 600 ducats. Very, very interesting. Oh, a quick note on Kircher. So as we said, he's essentially the da Vinci of the 1600s. And, and his, during his lifetime, he published 40, very, 40 works on various topics, including comparative religions, 
geology, medicine, botany, anything he could probably get his hands on. And in fact, he was also really interested in Egyptology and Egyptian hieroglyphs. So at one point, he even had said, made a slide, I think it was probably a monograph, but I'm not sure. But he had actually stated that he had deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphics, which we know isn't actually true because the Rosetta Stone wouldn't be found for about another 200 years or so. But he was the first person to establish the links between hieroglyphs and Coptic. And there are even some scholars that believe Kircher to be actually be the father of Egyptology. Questionable. <laughs> Is it coming from you? I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> so he also uh, was really I mean, interested. No. No? It's still, it's, I didn't know that he's possibly considered, but there's so many people that are considered possible fathers of Egyptology and archaeology in general in the sense of who started it when and where and all that other stuff. So it's, it's, it's very, it's all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) And really interesting though, in Kersher though, that now microscopes were starting to become a thing because they were invented in the 1600s and being somebody who's very into science and biology and medicine, he was actually one of the earlier works on the study of microbes themselves using microscopes and was actually one of the first people to establish that there was a link between microbes themselves and the plague and even helped reduce the plague in certain areas by helping people treat it, you know, being clean, clean and washing yourself and things like that and not talking to people and everything okay. we're kind of doing right now, or maybe we should be doing. But anyway, uh, he was also, <laughs> not getting to that topic, but he's also known for inventing magnetic clocks automatons and is even known for inventing what may have been the first megaphone Hmm. yeah polymath fascinating guy so as we said once kersher passed away the book stayed with a collection of his that went to the jesuits and sort of hopped around uh, probably from one monastery to another because we don't have between the time it ended up in uh, between kersher dying in 1912, we don't have a whole lot of information on it because it wasn't really in, in any scientific hands. Now, Voynich was, as you said, became a rare book dealer. I'll get to, in his background in just a minute. He, as most rare collectors of books will do, they'll go to swarm some of the more smaller towns around the world and visit those little bookstores because they're likely going to have things that you can't find, obviously, in the big bookstores. And it's thought that he actually went to Via Mondragon, which is near the ancient city of Tusculum, which is actually in the Latium region, which we have listeners from. Hello. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and they actually allowed him per- to peruse through a trunk of books that they had that was actually from Kirsch's estate, which is how we found the book. And he spent some time working on it. He had a friend of his... William Newbold, who, who spent some time working on it, and we'll get into that later too. But when Kersher passed away, he actually willed it to his wife, Ethel, who would then willed it to other people as well. It ended up in the hands of H.P. Krauss, who was mm-hmm. at, who actually gifted it to the Beneke Rare Books and Manuscripts Library at Yale in 1969. Side note, Beneke also has a Gutenberg Bible. Shocking. Interesting. Not really. Not for a rare book collection. <laughs> not, not really. Come on. Come on. All right. So this is going to be the background on Wilfred Voynich to give you a little idea of who he is and how he really got into this because I find it kind of interesting. So Wilfred Voynich lived from 1865 to about 1930. And he was actually not born 
Wilfred. He was born Mikhail Hadank Voynich, which was in present-day Lithuania. And the Hadank part was actually part of a Polish noble family from the area. Over his lifetime, he was actually a revolutionary. He's an antiquarian. I can't say that word today. And bibliophile, which we, we know from his rare book collections. Growing up, he actually studied at the universities of Warsaw. St. Petersburg and Moscow. And he actually graduated with a degree from Moscow University in chemistry and even became a licensed pharmacist. But in 1885, so he was about 20 years old, he actually joined a revolutionary organization called the Proletariat, which was very anti-Czarist, which continued throughout most of his life. And actually he was put in prison in 1886 as he was attempting to, fellow, to free fellow co-conspirators. In 1887, he was sent to Siberia for prison time, which is not a place I don't want to go for anything. <laughs> who, who wants to go there? Oh, the gulags, man. The gulags. <laughs> <laughs> but while he was there, it is said that he acquired a working knowledge of up to 18 different languages. I don't know how much of that is actually true, but I'm kind of casually learning about six different languages right now for the fun of it. 18 is kind of crazy to me. Wow. But in 1890, he's actually able to escape Siberia, and he took a train to Hamburg and eventually landed in London, which is where he stayed for most of the rest of his life. He actually ceased his revolutionary ways in about 1895, when apparently when a fellow co-conspirator died in a railway accident. And I don't know if that was an accident or a quote-unquote accident, but apparently it was bad enough for him to be like, okay, I'm good. I've got to go on with my life. I can't keep doing this because something bad might happen. But being somebody who's very much into history and the antiquities and education, he was actually on the advice of Richard Garnet, who was actually the curator of the British Museum at that time. He actually became an antiquarian bookseller in around 1897 and opened up his first bookshop in Soho in 1898. And... The bookshop did very, very well. In fact, eventually it did so well that he opened up a second bookshop in New York in 1914. And in fact, it was even so popular. The FBI actually investigated him because his books, the books in his collections that he was selling were valued up to $8 million. I'm sorry. Half, yeah, or, 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 I'm sorry. Half a million. I don't know where he was. But yeah, just, just a lot, a lot, a lot. Of books. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. It's half a million now, I'm, not not eight. <laughs> I, I have half a million. I don't know where my brain was going with that. But what's really interesting is in 1902, he actually married Ethel Bull, who was also a fellow revolutionary. Now, Bull, if anyone knows their math or if remembers from when they were teaching you about how to use computers back in high school about a Boolean search. <laughs> which Boolean algebra, the Boolean search is actually based off of Boolean algebra. Ethel's father was George Bull, who actually created, obviously, Boolean algebra. So there's that. <laughs> In 1904, Voynich actually became a British citizen, taking the legal name Wilfred Michael Voynich. And it is actually believed that his, I don't know if between both bookstores or just the Soho bookstore, but that he actually ran one of the largest rare book businesses ever in the world, or at least ever known basically i mean i don't have as much information as you on this i have more information on like the manuscript itself well that was gonna be my next section go right ahead okay because i got a lot on that too 
I know you do. <laughs> I know. Believe me. <laughs> All right. So this manuscript is actually really small. It measures 8.9 by 6.3 inches. It's very small for a manuscript with 240 vellum pages. Now, not every page is literally separate from each other. They roll up kind of. Yeah, they're in folio. Am I explaining that right? Yeah. Folio. So there, there's there's two folio is escaping me. Yeah, there's two different parts to this that we'll we'll talk about and so just to address it up front. A folio is where you fold the paper into multiple sections. So like a bifolio is where you fold it in half to create like essentially two pages mm-hmm. worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of two separate pages, it's just folded in half to create two pages. So most of these are, some of them are bifolios, some of them are three, some of them are four quadrant folios, and then there are actual different sections of the book. We'll call it, there's six sections of topics, but there's yeah. about, certain, there's 20 what are known as choirs, Q-U-I-R-E-S, which is actually a system of measurement depending on the size and quality of the paper, uh, in this instance, is 25 pages per choir, roughly. So, so it, it, as you'll see, if you look at the, the library's PDF files of the book, and the very last few pages, it actually shows you the side pictures of it. So you can actually see that it's in different sections uh, of, of different texts because they're folded up together. And then they're all sewn together mm-hmm. to create one manuscript. Yes. So, again, this manuscript is really small, which is really interesting. But, I mean, it fits all 240 pieces of vellum. (laughs) It's not pocket size, but it's not Giga Codex size either. If you'll listen to that episode, that book is huge. Like, (laughs) it weighs more than I do. It's about 150 pounds. But I think that also includes... Again, it it weighs more than I do. (laughs) So... As she was saying, this book has been separated into six sections. The sections included are botany, astrology, astronomy, biology, pharmaceutical, and cosmology. They also think there's a section that is thought to be like recipes, but again, this is due to illustration. So there's not a 100% guarantee that there's like the seventh section. It might be part of the previous section that we think it's part of. I think the recipes so, are possibly part uh, the medicinal section? Yeah, the pharmaceutical. Yeah. You call it medicinal, I called it pharmaceutical. pharmaceutical yes. Same, same you'll, thing you'll, you'll notice. I, either way, it has to do with medicine and plants and getting better. Yeah, yeah. So, And then you'll see the recipes when you look at the pictures. They're off, uh, They're towards the back of the book. They're in the last section. And each section that's possibly a recipe or at least a, a sentence referencing something has a star or a possible flower marking next to each entry. Yeah, that might be referring back to the, again, that section, the original section that it's probably connected to with pharmaceuticals. Not really 100% sure. Right. And oh, on, that, on, but, that, on uh, that note, it is believed that the current order of these choirs are possibly out of order than they were originally written in. Because, because as I said, they're portions put together to make a bigger book. And you can rearrange them in different ways so the way that it's currently in is believed to have changed throughout time rather than how it originally Mm -hmm. would have been bound okay Mm -hmm. Uh, the largest section is actually the botanical section so botany is the largest section in this book which includes 113 illustrations 
with undeciphered text surrounding it. So if you look at if we'll put pictures up of some of the pages and stuff, but we'll also put the link to the Benecke Library's PDF or whatever. Uh, it's, I think it's you said PDF, right? Yeah, yeah. They've scanned copies of it. You can yeah, look. yeah, yeah. We'll we'll put the link. Oh yeah, as well so that you can access it. But if you look at the picture, like the illustration is kind of taking up the majority of the page. It's kind of in the middle, and then around it is where all this writing that we have yet to translate is. And uh, it it's really interesting because as we're talking about the the text is not only we haven't translated the text. But the illustrations are odd and peculiar. Like, I've never seen a plant like what's in the botany section or even heard of a plant that's in the botany section when you look at those illustrations. So it does. Where did these plants come from? <laughs> well, there was, uh, I know it, it's in a later section, but I'll talk just briefly here. But there is one researcher i believe it was steven Bax, but i'll run and check my notes but it was actually possibly discovered that one of the plants is the, the castor plant castor bean oh. yes now again it's not but that's only like one i've never seen one like out of 113 of plants in the majority right yeah <laughs> well if and if, when you look at these plants I mean, they're probably better than what I can draw. My drawing skills aren't that great unless you're asking me to do architecture, but <laughs> which I like doing. But I think some of the plants might be, you know, they don't, I think we're also judging it possibly by the colors that they are. There's only three or four colors that were used in this book outside of the color for the text ink, which obviously was in black, which will, I'll also say it was with using iron gall ink and quill pens and was very... Uh, mm -hmm. like a two stroke per letter kind of a thing. So it's very quickly written out, but it's very calligraphic. It's fancy script, but the calligraphy, but no, no, it's the calligraphy was used. I'm just saying that the, the text was written very fancily, very curly. -like. It, it, it <laughs> is, which is also why some people such, including Stephen Bax actually believed that the text itself may have either Greek, Hebrew, Hindi, or possibly Arabic backgrounds. Latin. No, not no, no, not Latin. No, that the, the the script itself may possibly have roots in oh. Hindu, he, Hebrew, Arabic, ancient Hebrew, yes. ancient Arabic. Yes. Yeah, but we don't know that for sure. But he was able to determine that one of the plants in there was actually a castor bean plant. But well, the, the, oh, again, so there's red ink, blue ink, and green ink. That's that's pretty much it. So yeah. I think we were also judging it by the colors, possibly. Uh, I mean, botanists have looked at this book. Ancient, you know, people study ancient botany and current botany. But I think we're looking at some of the leaves. You look at pictures, and the flowers are blue, but the leaves are red and green. So yeah, I don't know any any plants that have red and green leaves, unless red is to denote you know dying leaves. But I think we're also judging it by the colors as well as by the the actual depiction of the plant it itself. Could be. So we could be again, we don't we don't know what the description is describing if it's in there. Right. Because we have yet to decipher the text. But as we were saying, going back to what we were talking about, the so the botany section is the largest. Then comes the astronomy and astrology sections. 
And among them, as you were saying, depictions here include, you know, the zodiac symbols, the stars, the sun, and even the moons in here. So it's an interesting uh, thing. Yeah, that's the same section that all to look at. The uh, pretty much the majority, if not all, of the human figures are all females. Now, not necessarily all of them are nude, but most of them are nude. But again, it's not in graphic. Oh, yes. It's just somebody who found it probably easier to draw the human form without clothes because clothes can be a little complicated sometimes, but they're very, can they be (laughs) just throw a triangle there? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, But they are, if you look at them, they're very European medieval styled, the Texas medieval styled, the drawings and the people are very medieval styled, which I think complicates some of the other theories. We're not going to go into a whole lot of theories later on there are so many we just wanted to keep this episode more into what the text is and then go into some of the key theories later on but we'll have links to a couple other podcasts what do you mean what the text is we'll have a couple uh podcasts. what do you mean what the text is we don't know what the text is no i meant the the, the script (laughs) the script of the text but we'll have we'll have links to other podcasts that go deeper into some of the theories so if if you want to listen to more in depth on those we'll have those ready for you guys but the astral ones is going to be the ones with all mostly the women in there. It's really fascinating and very weird, especially the That's biological section. I think that one's the, the strangest section. Yeah, just a little bit, but... Um... That's really all I had pertaining to the description. Oh, okay. Well, the biological section, as I was saying, which to me is the weirdest one, is where you'll see pictures of women and they look like they're pregnant and then they're wading around in pools of possible water. Some of them are blue and some of them are green. So also some people think that the green water, if it's water, is actually might be more of an herbal bath because it is believed that this book is more probably more likely to be an herbal remedy guide or a medicinal guide than most of anything else. Although there was one scholar, we'll get into a bit, who thinks it's actually a gynecological guide of the time, but that's in my theory section. But this also has, not only are they they waiting in various fluids, they're only interacted with, interconnected with each other by tubes and it's just very unusual and strange. I'm not really sure what to make of it. And then one page I came across, which is page 58 in the actual text, but page 114 on the PDF file, which is in the cosmological section. I think it's the astronomical section, because that one has a lot of different folded pages and folios out of it that you can actually see. But there was really, it was really interesting because it was one and it was concentric circles with people in it. And then text around it, it's it's very odd. But I wanted to point that out in case anyone wanted to take, take a look at that particular page. And then, as we said, the pharmaceutical one is going to be towards the back end of that with what are possibly recipes with the star, like the indications on it. Like you, if you had A, B, C, one, two, three kind of a thing to it. And I was actually, we were talking about this a couple of days ago because I was asking because you can carbon date the ink. And you can carbon date the paper and mm-hmm. you can protein date the paper to see what it's actually made out of, which is actually made of calfskin. Oh, side note, the current the current cover of this book is actually made of goat skin. But you can uh, tell on some of the pictures that there was a little uh, insect, I don't want to call it infestation, but there's some insect holes. And the, yeah, a little, just a tad bit, there's just a couple of insect holes on the front and back of the covers. 
which is believed that when the book was originally bound, it was possibly bound in a wood cover, which was then changed, probably in the same century that it was made just to make it so it doesn't get eaten by bugs. But I had actually had a, a thought about if you can, I don't want to say date the ink. Um, if, I guess if you do is like a spectral analysis or a microscopic testing of the ink to determine what the ink was itself was made out of. And from there, if you can actually determine where the ink may have been made from, depending on what it's made out of. And I do have a link in my notes that we will have that actually has the spectra, the, the spectroscopy, microscopy, and infrared photography information uh, that was used when it was uh, analyzed, uh, which was actually done in 2009. So it didn't actually tell you, it tells you what it's made out of, but it doesn't tell you what geographical location it may have come from because i don't know if that's actually something you can do if anyone knows let us know because that would be something really interesting to look at because i know you can do that with teeth sometimes where you can tell from like what people were eating where the last few years of their lives may have been because it's fascinating forensics is cool but it was a, as we said the analysis was able to determine what the inks were made out of that it was written with a quill pen and the text itself was written using iron gall ink. Really interesting. One of the texts in terms of origins, we don't have, because we don't know who wrote it. We don't know anything except up until about 1639, which was over 200 years after the book was written, where the book came from. But one theory is that in one of the drawings, there looks to be what possibly is a city, or at least buildings and referencing to a city. And in one of those buildings or possible battlements, there are what I like to call archer slots. I don't know if they have an actual name, but you know, back when you have those thin slots where the archers would be up on top of the towers and shooting down into the enemy that's coming to take it over. That really wasn't a common thing in the 1400s, except in Northern Italy. So that's possibly a starting point of where this book may have originated from. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I've got a section on codes about possible codes that were used. Did you have anything on that before we jump nope. into the theories? Nope. One of the codes that was possibly, that is thought to have been used for this in terms of deciphering it is actually something that's written in the book itself. And this was actually found using ultraviolet light. And it looks like either it might be a key to deciphering it, or it may have been written by somebody who was actually trying to decipher it prior to Voynich actually finding it. And it's a column uh, or it's a table with three different columns on one on the right hand side of one of the pages. And the first column going down looks like Latin characters. The second column are actual characters from the Voynich manuscript. And the third column is again in Latin, but it's shifted by one letter much if you're familiar with substitution codes, it's very much like the Caesar code, which is shifted one letter as you go along. I don't know if anyone's actually tried using it or not. I don't think that that has come to any kind of fruition and trying to figure out what this text is, obviously. So we haven't figured out too much of it. The second possible code is what's called a code and grill. And that's C-O-D-I-N. And this might possibly lead to it being a hoax because we have that possibility as well not sure how but given that it was made in the early 1400s so the coding grill is using if anyone remembers what punch cards are 
So it's essentially it's a piece of paper with holes in very specific areas. And what you do is you place that over text in a certain section using a certain book, and you write down the letters and the, the sections of the holes to solve the code. So you'd have to have a very specific edition of a specific book, knowing what certain pages you need, which can make it very difficult to actually decipher. It is actually, which would make it also be able to make it look like gibberish, which this sort of looks like, and also makes it really difficult to decode. It actually is believed by some scholars to have been written by Edward Kelly, if you go back to our John Dee episode, which is actually thought that's how Enochian language was actually even, yes. Invented. Because Dee was the one to talk with the angels, but Edward Kelly was the one who actually wrote it down. So we don't know how he wrote it down, but that's possibly one way, which leads to this possibly being a hoax. But seeing as Edward Kelly and John Dee were in the late 15 and early 1600s, Edward Kelly died in the late 1589 I think and the book was written 1408 to 1439 I don't think that they were able to get their hands on 150 year old vellum just to write a hoax out but it wouldn't go I wouldn't put it past Edward Kelly to make up a hoax because that's pretty much what he was known for <laughs> that's all he basically right. did it was just to make right. money now I mentioned William Newbold earlier. William Newbold worked with Voynich to help try to decipher this text. And he worked at the University of Pennsylvania and around that same time. And he himself thought that it was shorthand by way of ancient Greek. Now, as I took ancient Greek in college, I looked at this text. I could see where he thought that. I can't say that it actually works. But he did say that he was able to have <laughs> deciphered actual full paragraphs and proved that the book itself was written by Roger Bacon. However, that was actually debunked in 1931 by John Manley. Because again, this, I mean, by, at that time it wasn't carbon dated, but we know Roger Bacon lived between 1219 and 1292. And by the time Roger Bacon would have written it, it, I mean, the book, it wasn't 200 years before the book was written. So there's no way Roger Bacon could have written it. It doesn't seem It's not likely. possible. The, the vellum didn't exist then. <laughs> Yeah. Are you sure? Now, just kidding. I mean, I'm going to go into theory sections and we'll talk about this and I'll bring up Roger Bacon in just a second. But some people have asked hmm. why this book was written in code, if it is even written in code. And that would be because even if you're learning science, 1400s to the 1500s, even early 1600s, you still had you know, the Spanish Inquisition. You had you know, the, the church ruled. Christianity was becoming massive. Science was not at the forefront of what people believe. And so most people, even if you're looking through a microscope to determine the cellular structure of a plant, someone could tell say, that's magic or that's alchemy. And you would be punished by the church for delving into what God, into delving what God had created. So you don't do that. So you would want to probably put it in a code so that only scholars could actually read it, which is possibly why things were also written in Latin. Gives you a church Latin and regular Latin, but you could always make up codes. Now, Roger Bacon was known for making codes. And I said, he lived between 1219 and 1292. He also, his other name was also known as Dr. Mirabilis, which means miracle doctor. He's fascinating. I like Roger Bacon. He was actually an English Franciscan friar and was actually one of the forefathers of scientific method. He, interesting enough, he had a piece that he actually called the brazen head, which is either a bronze or brass automaton that was said to have answered any question that you ask it, except it was probably yes or no questions. 
But he was actually one of the first people. He also studied optics, like a lot of the people that have owned this book. He actually studied and, and was identified prismatic lights and the light spectrum by studying rainbows. And there was actually a New York Times article that I found from February 21st, 1921, which the title of it actually says, Voynich says it shows ancient magic surpassed star science. And to quote the article, Voynich will address the American Philosophical Society of Philadelphia on April 20th, at which time he says he will startle the scientific world. He says he will reveal some of the secrets locked up by Roger Bacon, the 13th century wizard, in the code which he says he has deciphered. The article goes on to say, Bacon wrote in Latin, but his more secret writing, according to Voynich, he concealed from the world in a code which somewhat resembles ancient Hebrew. Crude illustrations were worked into the text, and these two, according to Voynich, have significance. Thus far, he says he has deciphered about 20,000 words, but even this small part of the work, which comprises of 800,000 words, is itself a revelation. And then a quote from Voynich himself, when the time comes, I will prove to the world that the black magic of the Middle Ages consisted in discoveries far advanced of the 20th century science. For nine years, I've been working on a code, the key to which was discovered by Professor William Newbold of the uh, University of Pennsylvania. He also wasn't the only person who believed it was Roger Bacon. Johannes Marcy also thought it was Roger Bacon as well. There is a theory put forth by Edith Sherwood who believed that da Vinci wrote it. Da Vinci didn't live at the time that the vellum was created. So I still don't put that da Vinci wrote it because da Vinci would have been the late 1400s into the 1500s. So by the time that da Vinci said was even 10, because these drawings are kind of amateurish. So if da Vinci wrote it, we know how good da Vinci was at drawing things. If da Vinci did it, it would have been as a very young boy because his writing, his, his drawing styles got really good really quickly but it's unlikely and then so it wouldn't be with past da vinci he wrote things in code he did mirror script which is, though it isn't quite code it's still really interesting but she does pose it uh that it possibly was da vinci because on one page in the zodiac section there's a ram and it says april underneath of it which you can actually that's the one of the things you can actually decipher it says april but there's 15 what look like pregnant women around the ram which da Vinci was born in around the 15th of April. That's, I think, where she comes up with her theory on that. But again, the, the, the time of the creation of the vellum and the ink do not correspond with da Vinci. And then it was actually thought that Tepanesh also wrote the book because he was actually one of the first known owners of the book. And was also a doctor as well, which medical and herbal guides would have been something that he may have actually written. But again... The plants and the zoological, the astrological stuff, some believe that it's probably too fancy for a doctor of his time during the late 1500s, early 1600s to have written, because we're talking the Age of Enlightenment now, starting to get into that. The style itself was probably about 100 to 200 years prior to him. So if you look at it, it's definitely late medieval, early, early Enlightenment. So I, that doesn't really work well either. And this last one I kind of like. I don't know that it actually works itself out, but this is my last theory. So this is actually put forth by Nicholas Gibbs, who actually says that the book was a mm -hmm. women's health guide that actually plagiarizes things from the same era that it was put out. He said he was asked to analyze the, the manuscript and that he noticed a lot of 
synchronicities going along in the book and says that they're actually shorthand abbreviations in Latin for various scientific terms like AQ is for aqua, DQ is for deco or decoction, CON is Latin for confundo or mix, RIS is short for radices or root, and so on and so on. And that kind of makes a little bit of sense, but I'm not sure that that's enough to cover for the entire book. But as soon as that article was put out, there was immediate within like two days, immediate rebuttal from other medieval scholars and cryptographers. This doesn't actually hold any water. This doesn't work out. In fact, one of them was saying this is not even grammatically correct. It doesn't result in any Latin that makes any sense whatsoever. So I, that's another claim that doesn't work out in terms of the theories, but fascinating. Well, I have a theory. The theory states basically that some people think that the Voynich manuscript is a fake created by Voynich himself. <laughs> I love this theory because it's so far out in left field to me because think about it. 240 vellum pages with no mistakes. First of all, Voynich would have to have gotten his hands on 240 plus 15th century vellum pages because and he probably, ink. I'm, I'm going to get into the ink. Give me a second. And right. he would have had to, to not have made a mistake. He probably ended up throwing away several of these pages. And another one is I listened to the History Extra podcast, BBC's History Extra podcast, which is Absolutely amazing. Not sponsored by them or anything. I just actually love listening to this podcast. And they have an episode on the Voynich Manuscript, too. And I was listening to it, and she talks about that point. She is in the guest who's Elma Brenner on the episode. It's fascinating. The guest talk talks about the fact that he would also have to get a hold of all of the components that made up 15th century ink, which is really hard to do. And it's not even used today or during Voynich's lifetime. We had already passed that. So it's but even if you got the same ingredients, mm -hmm. the com the chemis the chemical components of those ingredients would not be the same. Even if you got the same berries or whatever you needed to make the ink the same way, mm -hmm. the chemical analysis of those would be different from 400 years ago because the soil's different. Exactly. No, we could do that. We could figure that out today. We couldn't figure that out in 1912, but. It's just fascinating that people are like, no, it's a fake. <laughs> it's not. It's well, really not. I mean, to a certain degree, I agree that it could possibly a fake in the sense that my, I, what, my, my personal assessment of this, because nothing matches the dates. Mm -hmm. The closest you get is Leonardo da Vinci. And this coming from Italy, possibly based off the drawings, not necessarily based off of the ink or anything that is part of the scientific analysis of the book. But the closest you get to any of this is da Vinci himself, but still the timeline doesn't add up. But it is posited, one, that the owner of the book, in terms of the no mistakes whatsoever, there is mm -hmm. a theory that's been put out that the the author could have been autistic. And I don't mean that in any kind of bad way because I've known many people who are autistic and family members even. But it, it, it is a common thing sometimes for people with autism to be very perfectionistic depending on the, the type and the degree. And that 
they can be very detail oriented. So not wanting to make a mistake, they can be very perfectionistic at times because they have to have things done in a certain way or a certain order. Mm-hmm. And they're very ritual, ritualistic in a certain sense. And some of the things that need to get very much, I would say Asperger's more maybe than necessarily autistic in terms of the whole spectrum, but Asperger's, I mean, I've got a little bit of that, so I can kind of understand it from that certain sense. But in terms of the whole net mistakes part, also, if you're tossing out, we said some of these were folios, meaning that they're folded up to create additional pages. If you make one mistake on a part of the folio, you're essentially... You have to throw away the whole folio. whole thing and start all over again. And that is a waste of paper. Paper That's a waste of vellum. Well, everything is made out of vellum. I know, but I'm sorry, not paper. Vellum, not paper. But exactly. (laughs) That's why I was like, vellum. I'm sorry. (laughs) Paper is easy. Get it right. (laughs) Vellum. I'm sorry. It's goat skin, calf skin. It's animal yeah. skin, but still, it's not. I mean, everything was written on either parchment, animal skin, or papyrus, and it's not as if it was incredibly difficult to come by. But it's not also as if it was incredibly easy to come by as well, because a lot of people at that time were also not literate. They, if they knew how to read, they knew a little bit, but most people probably weren't educated enough to have written the book the way it is. But it is thought that either because sometimes depending on the personality and the degree of the autism, some people will write things in certain languages or write them in code that is known to only to them. And I reference anyone to the to Ricky McCormick and the McCormick cipher if you want some information on that. And um, we'll may do an episode on that later. It's in our list. Hmm. Fascinating topic on that. That list it, goes on it, forever, guys. <laughs> Yes, yes, it will. (laughs) But, and and that same relation of the author writing it in their own code. I mean, I make my own codes up and write things on my own codes for the fun of it because I'm a nerd and I've been doing cryptography as an amateur for about 20 years. Of course, I'm going to make up my own codes because I'm a nerd. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) Yes, I am. I'm I'm, I'm, I made a code using my numerals, okay? And that was just for college, for fun. And my teacher was like, what is this? Because <laughs> I'm a nerd. That, but, again, that's an understatement description for you. But it is one of the theories posited is that even if the author wasn't possibly uh, autistic or has Asperger's, it is theoried that it was written by one person or at least commissioned for one person as their own personal medical guide of some kind, whether medicinal, herbal, alchemical, astrological, or, or all of the above, really, because you have all those sections in there. But I've looked at the tech, and I'm, frankly, I want to take a crack at it, but I don't think I'm going to come up with anything. I mean, you didn't even talk about the Freedmans. We'll get into that in just a second, but you got to bring them oh, up. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yes. The but- Freedmans. I mean, all the cryptographers from World War One and World War Two. We'll get to that in just a second because we totally forgot to bring that up. But I've looked at the text, and there's a, a ton of repeating. I guess they're called tokens, or because the type is the same. Type is like the word. Um, but there's a lot of symbology that's repetitive, which, if you were doing it as a substitution cipher, would be very easy to fill 
in the blanks as you go along because a lot of double letters, at least in English or any Latin-based language, typically you get a double letter and a word. It's going to be O's, E's, or L's typically. Mm-hmm. And that it, that is not something that works with this. So it could be somebody who made their own code up because, again, as we said, the church could arrest you or more if they found out that you were delving into science, into the astronomy and astrology, which back then they termed black magic, dark magic, magic, witchcraft, all of the above, even if it was just what we now know as scientific method for some of it. But in medieval times in particular, and even in Roman times, if you're going to go far back like that, I think even in Grecian times, there were thoughts, as we said about the herbal baths, it's kind of also depicted in the Zodiac section, I think, where it was thought that certain, I mean, baths were known to be cures. Romans loved their baths. We know that. But I was also, (laughs) I don't know how clean you can get in a Roman public bath because it's a public bath, but Romans loved their baths nonetheless. But it was thought at one point in in ancient Rome that baths cured all ills. So take a bath to get clean. Again, I don't know how clean you get in public water, but hey. Hey, they didn't know that back then. So (laughs) I guess it's the thought that counts in this situation. But uh, we should probably get into a little bit about deciphering in cryptology. I'll finish this and we'll go. It was thought that certain rituals, certain medicines, certain uh, rituals as in baths, taking an herbal bath or anything like that, uh, you should take it during a certain, not just certain time of the day, but a certain time of the month under a certain zodiac sign or depending on what your zodiac sign was based on is depending on what type of uh, treatment you should do. It's very interesting, but it was all tied together. Yes. So I can understand wanting to write it in a code because the church would be, this isn't us you should not be doing this. We're going to arrest you and burn your book. Well, there's so also, you, into- you know, this person may, who possibly commissioned it for themselves really didn't want anyone else reading it. So it, it's an idea. I kind of like that one, though, because that would explain a lot of it. But we forgot to mention it to anyone in particular. But we forgot to mention the cryptologist. Just to discuss this, some of the people that attempted to decipher this manuscript included William and Elizabeth Friedman, some of their extremely famous cryptologists from the era of World War II, who broke, um, I think it's called like the Japanese Purple Code or something The Purple like that. Code, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Pertaining to Japanese army movements. That's how we knew where the Japanese army was going to be moving, because they broke the code to it. But they could not break the code or decipher the Voynich Manuscript. Some of the most famous people, and they, they sat there studying it for years. Just years. Well, what they would actually so do, his, break it. his team, Friedman's team, while they were, you know, and, and, ta- and they would take break from deciphering wartime codes to try to decipher the Voynich Manuscript and eventually yeah. gave up because they couldn't do it. It yeah. was, I think this is the same team that there was one team during, I don't know if it was World War One or World War Two, but it may have been the Freedmen's and, and their team that they solved every possible war code or just code in general that was posted to them, even ancient codes. And there's like, they were, they were like, okay, you guys are the cryptography team, solve this. They were able to solve everything that was given to them, except the Voynich manuscript, even the Freedmen's. 
if the Freedmans can't do it, I don't know who can because they were known as the most prolific cryptographers of that time. Yeah, that's how interesting it is. Can you imagine being as good as you are and stumbling upon something you cannot decipher? You can't. You just yeah, can't. It, the text looks like it should be decipherable. And it's but not. But I can tell you that it's not. I mean, just looking at it, there's there's a lot of repetition, but yeah. there's it, it's just it's not going to be in any kind of format that would be decipherable in terms of even if it's polyglyphic or something. I don't know that it would even work that way. And that's why I think a lot of people also think it's in shorthand. Yeah. It, I mean, it definitely could be. Heck, but the thing about repetition is, is that if you can't even get one version of that word in repetition, that's in rep, that's repetitive. There's no point. Repetition doesn't. The fact that it's repetitive makes no difference. Well, the the worst thing about it as well too is there's no there's no seemingly form of punctuation at all in this text either. Mm-hmm. There's a certain symbol that runs throughout it, which kind of looks like the paragraph symbol in a certain way. But mm. but it's also interspersed between letters, so I wouldn't put it as a punctuation. But I've done that in some things I've come up with for fun, where I'm using a different symbol to denote the end of a sentence. But you wouldn't know that unless you learned the code. But I wouldn't also necessarily put it in the middle of a word either. That would be very unusual. That's true. I think I think that's everything for today. <laughs> I think Which that's is quite a lot. Yeah. We so, said it was going to be long. Uh, this might be the longest episode we'll probably do. So apologize uh, at the end. Not necessarily <laughs> true because we don't know what future episodes are going to hold. We're only on true. like episode 15 of this entire podcast. So silence. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> we try to keep it to about an hour. Uh, we had thought about five minutes to an hour. But yeah, we had thought about doing... I had thought about making this into two parts and do like history and physical description and theory section second, but I think we're just going to make this into a much larger episode for the time for at least for the first time. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, as this is the first really long episode, give us feedback. That's what we want to hear from you. You know, our emails mm-hmm. is at the, be- you know, our email, you know, our Instagram page, you know, our Facebook page. It's at the beginning of this episode. If you didn't listen to that, go back and listen to it. And I apologize if at one point it seemed like I was speeding through my stuff. It's just because the recording uh, system that we use only records an hour at a time. And it was trying to get through everything in under an hour. But obviously, yeah, that we're, we're going much farther than an hour. So I apologize if I sped through anything. If you have any questions, definitely feel free to, to ask and I can read a little more on it, or welcome to go onto our sources. Though all the information's on there for sure. Okay. Well, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. <laughs> Hope to see you in a couple weeks for our next history episode. And again, we'll have a poll up next week. Yes, I will be putting a post on Facebook and Instagram about it too. Okay. Well, on that note, we'll see you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye. Bye.